So you guys, I am so excited that um, Nicole is here to share with us this morning. She and I were messaging one another back and forth and she was, she was just talking about how, um, I suppose before I get into this, uh, Nicole is a friend of mine. She lives in Manitoba and she is my podcast partner and just such a dear, dear friend to me. And you're just all, we're all really blessed and lucky that we get to hear from her today. And um, she's got three kids who are not so little anymore. And her husband, Brad, they all, they all live just outside Winnipeg or Winnipeg, I should say. And um, she's a writer, she's a speaker, she's an author, and she is Métis. She is from uh, the Red River Métis. And we're so, I'm just so looking forward to her perspective, to expanding our ideas of how, how God has been speaking to her in her life, in her faith, and in her history and who she is. So she was saying this morning how um, there is really a dearth of Indigenous theologians, Indigenous and Métis theologians, and maybe she doesn't see herself as one, but I know she is for me. And she leads me to expand my view of who God is and how God relates to people. And I just know that we're just going to have an awesome time together this morning. So super big welcome to Nicole. Let's just, um, and we're going to, I'm going to pray for her. And then there she is. Hi, Nicole. Um, yeah. So God, I just thank you for Nicole. And I just pray that you would bless her and you would just give her full release to say what you have put on her heart to share with us. And I just pray that we would be open to new things and new ways and new understandings as we grow together um, as part of the human family of faith. So thank you, Nicole. And I think actually before Nicole speaks, she had wanted us to read through uh, the scripture this morning. So Sarah, I am going to pass it to you to read the passage from Romans, and then I'm going to read from Kings, and then we will get Nicole. So. Alrighty, so this is Romans 10, 5 to 15. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. All right, thank you so much. And I'm reading from 1 Kings 19, starting at verse 9. 
At that place, he came to a cave and spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. He said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice that said, what are you doing, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophet with the sword. I alone am left and they are seeking my life to take it away. Then the Lord said to him, go on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael as king over Aram. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And you shall anoint Elijah, son of Shaphat of a place, as prophet in your place. Whoever escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall kill. And whoever escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall kill. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel and all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. All right, thank you. I am going to do. All right. So thanks for the intro and for reading all those hard words, Karina. <laughs> um, I have uh, hacked out a course here for myself. I'm going to try and stay on the path, but um, what I write in my notes rarely looks at looks like what I get to when I get to speaking. Let's just see where God takes us. I invite you to join me on this adventure today. As Karina said, I am Métis, um, and it has been a journey to be able to say those words and claim that, and there's a whole complicated life story and political landscape because of that. And um, that's a story for another time, but I'm happy and it brings tears to my eyes when someone introduces me as Métis because it's a hard-fought identity that I have um, claimed as my own because it is who I am. And so um, I'm just going to launch into my notes and we're going to see where we go here. I'm a writer, which among other things makes me a bit of a control freak and a perfectionist. I like a tight narrative. A tidy story with no loose ends. I like to fill plot holes and find a satisfactory conclusion to each story arc. I edit until the narrative reflects my intention. And there's a temptation to edit my faith like I edit my writing. I'll admit there are passages and entire books of the Bible that I have tucked away in the back of my mind. There's a little locked closet back there for things that do not make sense to me and don't fit the narrative of the God that I know. But I'm trying to be brave and I'm trying to let those passages out 
air them out a bit and see what God has to say, even in those. And so when I um, accepted the invitation to speak today, I was given the lectionary. Dean was gracious and said I did not have to stick to it. But I took a look at it and I'm like, what the heck kind of lineup is this? <laughs> I started reading it and I'm like, okay, that story I have in the closet and that psalm I don't like to read and this thing is hard to manage and that story is overtold. So I was kind of freaking out, honestly. But I spent a couple of weeks just sitting with these things and reading them over and over again and letting them percolate and asking God where do we go in this? Because I don't believe that God wastes words. And so there's got to be a reason for these things. And there's got to be a meaning in them. And so as I began to sort of look at these things, the temptation to gravitate to how I was taught to engage with the Bible and my faith was really strong. Most of the sermons I heard growing up were five points to this and 10 keys to this. And pastors were carefully cherry picking verses to fit the narrative they were trying to say without any thought to the context of what the original text was. And what happens when we do that is that we lose the nature and the flavor of God in it. And what happened in my experience was one pastor would glean words of wisdom from another pastor. And then the next one would add and edit and reshape things uh, to fit his specific theology or point of view that he's trying to get across. And what would eventually happen the things that the Bible clearly said weren't exactly the things that we were told. And it became like this game of evangelical telephone where the end product was nothing like what we started with. And it caused some confusion in me and some disconnection from my faith and a realization that things I firmly held to were not things that actually God had offered up in the first place. And so what we see playing out in these two texts today is exactly the process that I've had to go through where the narrative I was clinging to was turned on its head. And this is what is happening for both Elijah and Paul. What we see in first Kings 19 and Romans 10 are two examples of two men, one experiencing a new narrative and the other one trying to explain a shifting narrative and neither are having a very easy time of it with Elijah. We see him screaming out for answers and an explanation, and he's searching deeply for God to make sense of what's happened. And what he's just come through is this big showdown with Jezebel over Baal. And people died, and he felt like he was bringing people to God. And in the end, Jezebel just wanted him dead. And so he fled far and fast. He ran to the point of exhaustion to where he was in the middle of nowhere. And God was supplying him with food and drink and telling him to rest and take care of himself and rest. And so after his time of recovery, he kind of wakes up cranky and he's like, okay, God, I did exactly what you wanted me to do. And now I'm on the run. And God just said, okay, keep moving forward. And he sent him to Mount Sinai. And that's where he is when we see him in this text is he's on this really significant mountain and he's still screaming at God. And he's had these days of travel to sort of percolate and, and get grouchier, not that he was ever a warm and fuzzy person to begin with, but he was now fueled by this sense of injustice that he's experienced. And so this is where we see Elijah. And in Romans, Paul is trying to explain to the church that they need to 
release the rule of law and release that idea of that there's a right way to do things in a specific way that God wants um, you to dress and function and eat and whatever, and embrace the relationship and trust and mystery that Jesus offered. And both of these passages essentially model what decolonizing can look like. Decolonization of your faith is an exercise in unlearning. So this morning, I'm inviting you to unlearn with me, to unlearn and leave room for the mystery of Jesus at home in us and with us, and us at home with him, living and breathing and experiencing and being with him in a new way. Modern Christianity has been heavily influenced by colonization. At some point in history, someone decided that the world, that world domination was a theme of the Bible. They made wars holy and force feeding the gospel to the masses a sacred calling. Whether you're looking at 200 years of crusades or 150 years of state mandated genocide in Canada, the result is still the same. The Lord's name is taken in vain as a culture that glorifies dominance and prosperity co-ops the message of Christ. The nature of Christ is overshadowed by the call of stewardship. The economy of discovery replaces the fruit of the spirit and righteousness is exchanged for rightness and assimilation is valued over creation's diversity. Prosperity is punked down in front of the gospel and the good news becomes a good life and it becomes something to aspire to rather than an invitation. And we forget mercy and care and love. And worst of all, we forget the way of Jesus and the sound of God's voice calling us into relationship. We are creatures of habit. I don't know how many of us how many of you guys are like me, but I park in generally the same place every time I go to the grocery store. I follow pretty much the same routine every morning as I get ready. And remember back in the olden days when we used to be able to meet in person on a Sunday morning? Did you all just sit in the same row week after week? I did. Funny story, I used to be on staff at a church and our church was having a growth spell and we we're trying to get people to move further into the sanctuary and sit closer to the front. And we were inviting them and, and, and getting, trying to ask our leadership to move forward and no one was doing it. So we decided that one Sunday I would come early and I would sit a row ahead of where I normally sit. And so I moved my family up a pew and everyone else kind of filed in around me and we all ended up a pew further ahead. And the next Sunday, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna do this again and I'm gonna move one more pew. So let's get everybody to move one more pew up. And our church had about 300 people in it. So it was kind of funny to see everybody look where everyone else is and move forward. So I decided to get there early again and move one pew up. But the woman who normally sits in front of me beat me to the church. And she had put her stuff down and she turned around and she goes, I know what you're up to and I'm not having it. And so she sat in her spot and everybody else migrated back to their own spots and we gave up on shifting the church. Uh, it's not that easy to shift a congregation, let me tell you. Um, and it's not that easy to shift a person. And that's what God was experiencing with Elijah, is trying to shift him and his perspective of how God works. And so what we see in Elijah's story is that he gets to Sinai and he's still raging at God. And he says the same thing over and over again. He basically says, previously he had asked God to actually take him home. He wanted to die. Things were so terrible and he was so um, discouraged by what he had experienced. He wanted to just have his life end. 
but God refreshed him and restored him and got him moving forward. And he meant it's not Sinai. And he says the same complaints over again. He says, you know, I've been working my guts out for you. I've been preaching for you. I've been slaying the enemy. I've been taking down false gods. And the thanks I get is some crazy woman hunting me down, trying to kill me. Because this is not fair and it's not just. And so God says to him, okay, go stand on the mountain and wait. God will be there. But this is God saying it to him about him. So Elijah goes and he waits and he listens and he's expecting God in the big. So when the wind comes, he's there for it. He's leaning into it and he's listening hard, but God wasn't there. The next thing was this crazy earthquake. God wasn't there either. And each time God is saying, yeah, that's not me. That's not me. The fire happens. God says, yeah, that's not me either. And suddenly there's silence. And in this silence, I think Elijah has this moment of realizing that the whole time he's looking out there for God, God was in here already speaking with him, already standing with him, already bringing him comfort and direction. And so because this was Sinai and things had happened here before, Elijah takes his scarf and he wraps around his face and he puts his head out and he's like, okay, God, this is what the problem is still. I poured my guts out for you. I fought the enemy. We took down the false God. I did all these things and people still want to kill me and life isn't fair. And God speaks to him in the stillness and gives him direction. Now this is where it doesn't fit my narrative because I have trouble with God saying, yeah, there's going to be smiting and stuff down the road. Um, I think that may be, it's hard for me to reconcile those things, right? But the truth in what we're seeing is that God met, met Elijah where he was and spoke to him in a way that was entirely personal because Elijah wasn't praying for the nations at this point. He was grieving for himself. And so God didn't have to do a huge, big display for anyone because the audience was one. And so God became intimate with Elijah and came, met him face to face and spoke to him and walked him through this crisis of trust and confidence and identity that Elijah was having. And the truth was is that God had walked him through all the way since he had left his last place. God was with him ministering to him on the road. He was with him on the walk while he was brooding and he was with him through all of those other things. There is no, there was no disconnect from Elijah, even though he felt it, God was still right there with him speaking to his heart and God made it personal. And this is echoed when we look at Romans and what Paul um, was trying to say to the people there. For generations, people had lived under the rule of law. And there was a mandate for how you did every piece of your life. There was no freedom. There was no liberty. There was no individualism. Everybody did the same thing. And what Paul is trying to get the early church to understand is Jesus did away with that. Jesus removed this rule of law that forced assimilation and rewarded people based on performance and created a space to sit and have relationship and hear story and share a story and meet each other's needs on a personal level. But people were not getting it. They were gravitating back towards law. And you know, what I found funny in reading this passage was when I first became a pastor, we had this conversation about the right way to lead people to Jesus and what are the right words so that we make sure that they confess with their mouth and believe with their heart and they, Jesus rose again. And these are the things that, and it was this comp totally 
overcomplicated conversation about how to bring people to Jesus. And I realized in that conversation I was having with one of the leaders was that we were moving back towards law and we were forgetting the relationship. There are no magic words that bring us to Jesus. It is the mystery and the open heart that bring us there. And I, I, we have to, we have to have an element of trust in who Jesus is. And this is sort of what this passage in Romans is talking about, where Paul is explaining that Jesus did away with all of these things so that we can have this relationship. And he says here that the word that saves us is right here as near as your own tongue and your mouth. And it's as close as the heart in your chest, meaning that Jesus is all wrapped up in and through us. And instead of searching for the right way to do things on this list of rules, how about we engage with the heart within us where Jesus is already speaking to us and moving in us. And Paul was encouraging the church not to go out and speak a list of rules to people who'd never met Jesus, but to speak of their personal experience, to tell of the Jesus that they know, not of the rules that they follow. And that was a huge shift. Like I can't even begin to explain what, a topsy-turvy idea that would be to these people who had spent their whole lives learning the rules and following them and teaching the rules so that their children can follow them and generationally. And now to say, let that all go and let's just talk about you. It had never been about the person. It had always been about the collective. And that is colonization. Colonization cancels the individual and only focuses on the collective. There is no personal story. There is no personal need. It is all about the collective. And Jesus was completely opposite of that. He was entirely relational. And that's why, you know, in verse 14 of Romans 10, he said, um, Paul writes, but who can call for help if they don't know who to trust? And how can they know who to trust if they haven't heard of the one who can be trusted? And how can they hear if nobody tells them? And how can anyone go and tell them unless they are compelled to do so? And that's Paul explaining the chain reaction of events when we engage with our personal faith in, with Jesus and we let it spill out relationally. Um, Jesus' whole life was focused on the people he interacted with. He was hands-on and his every word spoke to dismantling the unjust society and rebuilding something new in its place the kingdom of God here among us. The purpose of colonization is to, ex to extend the reach of dominance and oppression and hold and uphold the systems that benefit those in power. Jesus, with his very presence on this earth, turned this whole scheme on its head, and yet we still gravitate towards this idea of dominance. But at its heart, colonization is a system of fear, and it feeds on fear, and it breeds fear. And Jesus didn't come didn't Jesus come to liberate us? And there's no fear in liberation. Colonization and patriarchy are bedfellows, and they're based on holding on to power and silencing any voice that might topple their structure. And that's why it's important for us to start engaging in a personal way. And there was, there's a, a, an account I follow on Instagram. It's called Decolonizing Christian. And they put out this challenge about the Micah verse, it talks about um, loving mercy and justice and following God. And they talk about the practical ways to do that. And decolonizing your faith isn't only changing your mindset, but it's also changing how you live this out. 
and how you interact with others. And this is a hard one because it's not, it becomes not about you. When you're decolonizing your faith, even though you have this personal connection with Jesus, it's not about your story. It's about connecting with somebody else and their story and relaying Jesus to them. And understanding that there are many ways to worship. There are many ways to teach and preach and be together. And it's removing the power structure. And the problem with patriarchy and colonization, when they're together, they put an undue strain and an unrealistic, unrealistic expectation on men to uphold this whole structure that is causing disease to trickle down and um, this is one of my rabbit trails. I'm trying to figure out, do I go down this one or do we go this way? You know, in the modern church, there's a lot of conversation about decolonization and patriarchy and the evils of all these things. But when we come back to the very person of it, these structures uphold a system that allows our leaders to act immorally and without um, accountability. And it turns them into someone that they never wanted to be either because absolute power without accountability, without real relationship, without community to stay accountable and stay connected to one another. There is no choice, but to fall into this sin of domination and this idea that as a priest, you're somehow exempt from Jesus taking you to task on how you live and move and breathe. And so in this whole conversation today, I just want to invite us all to require better of each other and to press into a deeper conversation with one another, to make space for other voices. When Karina and I were talking about the lack of indigenous theologians, why that is so difficult for me is that our culture values elders and those who've gone before and their voices and we count on their paths to lead us forward. And when that path isn't there, then it leaves people like me uh, hacking out paths and trying to find a way forward and trying to find a place to learn and to grow and to find our equilibrium. And so I want to challenge each of us individually and as a church collectively to search out theologians who don't look like us, who don't sound like us, who don't maybe even necessarily believe the same way that we do because their voices matter and they bring life to other people and representation matters. And that's the crux of decolonizing our faith is removing those power structures that make Jesus look like someone who holds all the power rather than someone who sits with everybody. And so This is why decolonizing our faith is so important. Jesus has always been about the one, the individual and the person, and the, all of the persons who make up the community or the body. This is part of the mystery of our faith. When we take the time for the personal, the community flourishes. But when we solely focuses, focus on the collective, the individual is lost. So let us, challenge, let us be challenged to live out a decolonized faith where we value the person where we lean in to hear their voice and we acknowledge their story and we accept the one, the person and their humanity. Let us live a decolonized faith where we tell our stories of Jesus that we know. 
where our personal experience with Jesus ushers in liberation for others. Let us tell stories of his goodness, his sorrows, his comforts, and the generous love he lavishes on us. Let us live a decolonized faith that recognizes the many ways to worship, to learn, to teach, and to know the creator. We're a grand cathedral organ and an acoustic guitar and an indigenous drum all call forth worship. Where our languages are heard individually and collectively in their beautiful diversity, raised in praise and thanksgiving. Let us live a decolonized faith where we hear God's voice in our souls and in the wind and in the silence and in the community. Let us live this faith that Jesus offers in relationship, in community, and in our hearts. Let us commit to hold each other accountable for engaging in a deeper, more personal way with each other and with our Jesus. Let us be agents of liberation on our quest to decolonize ourselves. And thank you, Dean.